Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Journalism, like anything else, is subject to change. And over the last decade, it has undergone tremendous changes, the sort that have impacted nearly every aspect of journalism. The size of newsrooms, sources of revenue, changes in ownership, and the means of making and getting content to the public. Brad Houston has been an active contributor to journalism's transformations, both as professor and night chair in investigative and enterprise reporting at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and as the co-founder of the Global Investigative Journalism Network. His new book, Changing Models for Journalism, Reinventing the Newsroom, explores those transformations in depth, and he joins us now to talk about it. Brent, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thanks for inviting me. Now let's get right to it. (laughs) Is journalism in decline, and is that even the right question to be asking? Um, First of all, journalism is not in decline. What is in decline is what we term the mainstream legacy media that we relied on uh, for so long. Um, What's on the upswing is the nonprofit newsroom model and a lot of innovative uh, innovative digital newsrooms. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get to those two uh, pieces of the upswing, you talked about legacy uh, institutions. Let's talk about traditional news. Um, when would you pinpoint the start of the decline of the traditional news model? Um, in the research in my book, actually, I would say more like 1979, 1980, mm-hmm. uh, when people were raising consultants were raising the alarm about the amount of penetration of newspaper news among the public. In other words, the number of people who are actually reading the news was going down. Um, but the real decline we all noticed uh, really, really hit with the Great Recession, and that's when even more layoffs occurred in uh, mainstream newspapers and, and other media. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. thereabouts. Yes. And yeah. before we leave the point of, of when the decline of traditional news started, you mentioned 79-80. What was it that was behind that decline? Well, the beginning was TV. <laughs> the TV was cutting into it. Uh, and as new technology came along, it cut more and more into um, the traditional newspapers and that model. And that's when the harvesters, also known as predators or vultures, started showing up and selling off assets and cutting staff to keep the profits going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And I think that's an, it's an important thing to sort of think about in the context of what kinds of changes have happened um, over time. One of the ways that uh, print original news outlets, which were competing um, with television and then with the advent of the internet, obviously things that were online, um, there was competition um, and news outlets were making up for losses in print edition subscriptions and sales with the use of paywalls um, for digital access. And many people, based on how they've reacted to that, um, they don't want to pay for content 
anymore. And they're upset when they can't access content for free. So there is maybe a bit of entitlement there. So if we take it back to the time that you were talking about, 2007, 2008, and the Great Recession, at that time, there were news sites offering free content in early internet days, we could say. Did that do some unintended damage around setting people's expectations for what they should get without paying for it? Yes, it did a lot of damage. Um, It also gave the content uh, a way to Google, Yahoo, and others who've made enormous money uh, using that content as a way to attract advertisers. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a a big error. Uh, We did not embrace the the new technology the way we should have. Okay. So as far as embracing new technology, um, who has done that well? So what sort of business models in journalism are are doing well, and is it that that they're leveraging? Um, well, one thing is to realize that you're digital. That's a big thing. And um, the second thing is to realize that people are reading news off their mobile phones. So you start to think in a different way. You start to think in streams of news. Uh, but if you're looking at somebody is combining the different models really well, there could be uh, Block Club Chicago, which is doing incredible neighborhood uh, coverage, or Outlier Media in Detroit, which is uh, based on texting uh, to people who don't have broadband internet. So those are the kind of innovations where you're getting more community engagement in the old ways of face-to-face, even through the pandemic, and you're getting it through texting. And um, innovation is a lot of times combining uh, different technologies. Mm -hmm. Can you talk with us more about Block Club Chicago? It is a, a nonprofit. But there is also a subscription base involved there? Yeah, they, most of their content is free and out there, their basic content. The subscriptions are set up as a way of supporting them. I consider mine a donation, and full disclosure, I'm on their board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then special, special information or newsletters. But the bulk of their information is, is available. And, you know, they kind of took up the magic uh, monthly number that a, a lot of places have, which was in the last year, it seems like people are very willing to spend about $5 a month without thinking too hard about it, mm-hmm. whether it's Substack, Blood Club, uh, Block Club Chicago, and Apple service. Um, but, you know, that's part of the model they have, and they're raising money, and they're having events. Uh, they're, you know, they've set up n- numerous revenue streams. Mm-hmm. And as for for-profit outlets, Which ones do utilize a paywall or subscription service well? It's the big guys for the most part. New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Um, And Wall Street Journal has the added bonus of being really concentrated on topic. And that's where subscriptions really work out. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Bloomberg, uh, it's, it's the big ones that seem to have the most success, you know, where our failures and problems have been is in metro and local coverage. Mm. And even if somebody's for profit, uh, you can tell now they're asking for donations. Uh, the Seattle Times, I think, has more than two dozen reporters that are supported by donations funneled through the Seattle Foundation. Mm-hmm. So is that an example of for profit taking lessons from the nonprofit? Uh, 
lessons. Or, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's also desperation. Sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, when your your model blows up, which it was advertising, uh, you really have to scramble to to replace those revenues the best you can. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, I like the Salt Lake uh, Tribune. It, it it was honest about its situation. It went from for profit to non profit, mm -hmm. and just acknowledged that's what's keeping people alive. And people question the non profit model, but look who I'm talking to: public oh. broadcasting. <laughs> it's been going going on for decades. Right, right. Well, and before we drop this point about you know these bigger outlets um, that are succeeding. What do you think it would take for smaller outlets, you know, local ones? You, you just talked about what's going on um, in, in Salt Lake City. What do smaller local outlets need to do to get the same results that the, the big guys do? Well, fortunately, they don't have to get those results, thank goodness, that, that, that amount of revenue. But I think what we're seeing in the local area, Block Club Chicago is doing it on a, a larger scale, uh, but you get donors or subscribers for minimum amount. Um, you get sponsorships when you can. Um, you hold events. Uh, some of that is taken from uh, what small weeklies are doing to to continue. Mm -hmm. um, the the one thing that people forget is the overhead costs have gone way down if you don't have to print something and deliver it. So that's, you know, helped us a lot on the cost side. Mm -hmm. But isn't there something that is lost when we lose print or is that a, you know, is that an outmoded way of thinking or maybe just a like a way of resisting what is already here? Well, it you know, it's sad to say I started out with, with print and newspapers, but print in terms of news, except for special editions and things, and, you know, on a daily basis, it's over. My, my students don't read, have not read newspapers routinely for years. Mm -hmm. They do read news. They read news that comes out of newsrooms in addition to social media. But, you know, I think at some point we have to go it's over, not completely gone, but it's over. Mm -hmm. And where is it that your students get their content? What do you hear from them about where they want to work? Um, well, some still want to work in, in traditional broadcast, which is not gone down as quickly as the rest. Uh, There's some that want to work in newsrooms that may produce a newspaper. Um, they tend to look at newsletters, topic-driven newsrooms. Um, so it's it's all over the place. But what they're realizing is that looking at nonprofit newsroom is reasonable and very reasonable. I mean, in the midst of the tremendous cuts we've had in mainstream and legacy media, uh, the number of independent nonprofit newsrooms who have been vetted by an, the Institute for Nonprofit News has grown from about 25 in 2009 to more than 450 now. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of opportunity and different sizes and missions in the nonprofit newsroom network. Right. Well, and we are, as you said, uh, we are at uh, in the midst of a, a fundraising drive here at St. Louis Public Radio because we are a nonprofit outlet. 
And part of what we are doing is collaborating and sharing content with many other organizations in the region. How does the nonprofit model change the way newsrooms see their relationships with one another, um, specifically from competitors to collaborators, just in about 30 seconds? Yeah, so we had one big C before, which is competition. We now have collaboration and coordination. And um, that's how the model has changed. Uh, when you, you need to collaborate and coordinate your collaboration in order to get all the news out you need to get out there. And is public media something that your students say they're interested in getting to? Yes. 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 So we're going to take a very quick break here. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Now back to our conversation with Brant Houston. He's professor and night chair in investigative and enterprise reporting at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. His new book, Changing Models for Journalism, Reinventing the Newsroom, comes out of his experiences as a journalist, an educator, and the co-founder of the Global Investigative Journalism Network, an association of more than 240 investigative journalism nonprofits throughout the world. Now, Brett, before the break, we were talking about collaboration, producing content. Um, you had noted that nonprofit news organizations are doing well. But as we think about funding for them and resources, is there some danger of oversaturation um, with nonprofit news organizations, particularly given competition for funding? I don't think so. Not yet. Um, there are so many news deserts and what we call ghost newspapers um, throughout the United States. Um, there's more than enough news to go around and I think enough funding to go around for it because, um, you know, once you don't have it, you really appreciate it and you're you're more willing to support um you know, support your local news uh, in some way, whether it's donations or through memberships like public broadcasting. Mm -hmm. um, I think we'll see increased funding not only from local institutions and businesses, but from people. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we're at the saturation point because we're missing so much. Right. Now, as far as the kinds of content that's being produced... Your roots are in investigative journalism. How is it that that form of journalism is faring um, across the board? Um, I think it's really um, overall doing well, and primarily um, because the nonprofit newsrooms have initially started because so many investigative reporters were either laid off or frustrated um, at wherever they were working. And so they've been able to focus more on the investigations and daily, weekly accountability reporting than they have been for, had been for years. Mm -hmm. And what do you think that says about people's you know, appetite for that kind of journalism? Well, I think 
no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you do want your government watchdogged. Uh, you want to know what it's up to. You want to know how it's spending your uh, money. Um, so I think, you know, the response to accountability in uh, reporting, not just big projects, investigative reporting is really good. Mm-hmm. So as far as ownership, that is something that has been uh, a big part of the, the conversation. And private equity firms, which often swoop in on businesses in distress, have been buying out newspapers for some time. Uh, the share of American newspapers owned by private equity groups increased from 5% to 23% between 2001 and 2019. Now, for those who follow what happens with newspapers closely, the answer to this question coming up may be obvious, but for others, how does this trend show itself in the content uh, we do or don't see? Well, uh, the hedge funds or you know new investors come in. They're coming in basically to to harvest uh, in business terms a distressed industry. That means you'll see them sell the real estate. You won't see a newspaper office, um, they'll lay off staff, you'll see the manifestation of it, and your paper gets thinner and thinner, and then it gets delivered on every other day or once or twice a week, and um, the business plan is for this to disappear after what last profits can be reaped from it or or taken. Mm -hmm. And how did the COVID-19 pandemic affect this trend? Uh, well, it definitely affected the trend in more papers uh, closing or being absorbed into chains that tend to aggregate what content they have um, to keep ad revenues coming in. Mm-hmm. And what danger does that pose to you know, the public having the information that it needs? Um, it's terrible. Uh, you know, I live in a community that... Uh, the newspaper is trying to survive, but it's taking a lot of hits. Uh, there are agencies that haven't been covered routinely in years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's budgets passed that no one gets to know about. Um, and one of the more serious things is you start to lose a forum for civil discussion, mm-hmm. which, of course, undermines the deep elements of democracy. Yeah. Well, what are some examples of news outlets, Brent, that are doing well um, at connecting with communities and also with finding new audiences? Um, well, I've cited a couple of them earlier. They're Block Club Chicago, uh, which is covering uh, Chicago neighborhoods that haven't really been covered in years and building up uh, new audiences through community events, um, you know, getting out into the neighborhoods. Their reporters, for the most part, are embedded in the neighborhoods they cover. Mm-hmm. Um, Outlier Media in Detroit uh, is using texting. That builds up new audiences uh, in terms of city services and problems. Um, Wisconsin Watch um, has become the leading aggregator, collator, and uh, originator uh, state news mm-hmm. and providing state news and working with public broadcasting. Yeah. So those are some places where the audiences are, are building up. People are finding places where they can get very credible evidence-based news. And um, that's the way you really 
build audiences, and you cover neighborhoods and people who haven't gotten any coverage, like I said, for decades. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about social media, because this is how people, they do share uh, good journalism. Um, then you have platforms like TikTok and Instagram, and these are being leveraged as ways to reach new audiences. Is it the case, however, that people are really clicking into news stories from these apps, or do they just continue to scroll through? Um, and then, you know, how is it that outlets are supposed to make any money from something like TikTok? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I am concerned that we may be repeating errors of the past and giving away um, things for free to people or aggregators and making money off of it. So, um, you know, what you want to do is have people point to your news stream or your news site, um, and that's going to be a real issue in how you actually get money out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I think if you have credible news and you build your audience and they're used to coming to you not for lots and lots of opinion but for what's actually going on, mm-hmm. um, that's your, your best bet. Yeah. Now, Brent, so far we've been mostly talking about uh, business model of journalism, but it's also worthwhile to note the culture clashes and ethical dilemmas that cyber environments create um, and present challenges to an outlet's ability to maintain credibility and trust. So, I mean, given what the environment is, what do you make of uh, of that cultural piece and, and the ethical piece as well? Well, again, I, I tend to push to go to fundamentals in the midst of what some people consider quite a chaos of information uh, and disinformation. I, I think you have to establish yourself as a relatively calm and reliable voice in the middle of all this. And I you know, the culture clashes are going to continue. Um, you know, they're amplified by social media. But I do see a trend towards people saying, we're just giving you the basic news, you know, go elsewhere to have your clashes and share your opinions. Mm. Uh, but it is, it's a challenge. Yeah. So it's some decision making about which, uh, which kinds of information to put out uh, or or content and whatnot. You know, earlier you talked about investigative journalism doing well, and that's not typically something that we associate with, you know, happy stories. And then there's this notion of news fatigue, which is the idea that a lot of the news is really tough to hear, and that people want, you know, quote unquote, good news. Um, and you know, we've heard as much when we've surveyed our listeners a year and a half ago. So in general, I mean, they've said that they want more happy stories or more joy. What do you make of that, Brand? I think, apart from, say, a newsroom that is into accountability reporting, uh, you do want to have a mix, and you don't want it to be um, a relentless uh, parade of, of problems. There has been a movement called Solutions Journalism, 
that really pushes, if you are pursuing a problem, um, making sure to include what solutions other people have come up with. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I started out in a community newspaper, and personally, as a reporter, I periodically wanted to do the feature and the happier story, uh, along with the story that told you how your public money might be misspent or employees weren't showing up to work or things like that. So I think people want to mix, but I think um, if you gave them all happy news, then they would say, well, why aren't you telling me about city council or the zoning board and why they did this or why the utilities just hiked our rates by 50 percent? Well, clearly Uh, it's a... So I think when you you poll them, they'll say, yes, I want happy news, but they also want this other stuff. Right. Brent Houston is professor and night chair in investigative and enterprise reporting at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He's also the co-founder of the Global Investigative Journalism Network and author of Changing Models of Journalism, Reinventing the Newsroom. Brent, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.